Let's turn again in our Bibles from this morning uh, back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me review that outline handout that you have to remind us how we got where we are now. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, uh, we move from <clears throat> Paul's... Paul's um, emphatic reminders of the oneness of the church uh, because it has one Lord and one God, one God and Father of all. He moves from that oneness to saying, uh, but we each receive individually grace measured out to us by Christ as he sees fit. And so there is diversity in that unity. But even in the diversity and the diverse grace we each have from Christ, that is all made possible because of what Christ has accomplished has accomplished all by himself. And so the big idea is that the church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. Because our crucified and risen Savior has actually ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has poured out his spirit and all the grace needed upon his church. And that means great things for us as one body. It also means great things for each of us individually. So, verse 7 of the text had told us that uh, it, it talked about this from one angle, saying the ascended Christ has gifted his church with great grace. And then verse 8, backed up by Psalm 68, which Paul quotes in that verse. We went to great lengths looking at Psalm 68. But uh, verse 8, as well as the psalm behind it, looks uh, from a slightly different angle, and it sort of rewords that. That the ascended Lord has lavished his people with great triumph. Christ has won. uh, Just as in Psalm 68, the Lord of hosts of Israel was pictured as the victorious king on the march. Enthroned among the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And he brought Israel from Sinai into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Defeating every foe until he ascended Mount Zion to be enthroned as king among them. Even so, Christ came down to his people to accomplish his great work of redemption. And he marched along until he had defeated every foe. And then he ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, specifically to his church. So Christ, just as was said of the Lord of hosts in Psalm 68, Paul says, it says that because... In an even greater sense, Christ is the Lord of hosts, and now what he has accomplished in his incarnation, his death and resurrection and ascension, he has won a great triumph. But he shares that triumph and the spoils of that triumph with his people. So he's lavished his people with great triumph. That took a lot of time to unfold this morning. Now we're going to a a shorter third Third point to round it out and to finish the text in verses 9 and 10. And here we, uh, Paul emphasizes the fact that the ascended Lord was first humbled to the grave to secure such gifts. The ascended Lord was first humbled to the grave to secure such gifts. And even though there might be different nuances of interpretation of some of the phrases Paul uses here, Uh, I think we should all be able to agree on that general idea. 
that the ascended Lord was first humbled to death in the grave to secure such gifts. Uh, I should just read, let me turn there again, sorry. I should just read the entire sermon text to uh, get us going again at this point. Verse uh, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Or, uh, more literally, into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And after that, it will say, and this is the one who now pours out grace upon his church. Now, right away, we run into one of the most hotly debated texts in the New Testament. uh, Just to quote S.M. Baugh here, the meaning of that phrase, the nether regions of the earth, you could say. The lower regions, some translate it like the ESV, the lower regions which are the earth, or you could say the lower regions of the earth. The meaning of that phrase has drawn significant discussion over the centuries with three, um, I'll paraphrase this, three basic understandings of what it means. Uh, Number one, uh, the first uh, common interpretation has been uh, Christ's descent into hell in some sense. And typically this this is not meant that Christ... Uh, suffered the pains of hell after he died. Typically, this was the idea that he uh, descended to announce his triumph to uh, defeated spirits or that he descended to, to release the righteous dead from a holding place and bring them to heaven with him. That was one common interpretation. A uh, second interpretation is that This is just talking about how he descended to the earth itself. Um, The Greek might be read, uh, he first descended um, into the lower regions, the earth, meaning the earth. That is, he's going to ascend far above all the heavens. That's like the highest place in the universe. Uh, The opposite of that would be the earth being the most lowly place in the universe. So there's a contrast there, some people say. Um, Well, all people would see a contrast, but this one says the contrast is between heaven and earth. Uh, Or the third option is that it's talking specifically about Christ's death, the fact of Christ's death, and that the lower regions of the earth is referring um, picturesquely to Christ's death itself. He first descended in death before he ascended in power. Um, and S.M. Bob remarks that the, the first view about some sort of descent into hell or into Sheol or Hades, he said that um, was a, a popular view in the early church, um, sort of like a view back then of 1 Peter 3.19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. But in, in Mr. Baugh's opinion, he says it's hard to defend this interpretation today. Um, 
So I'll just tell you, I don't take the first view. Um, there are some very smart, uh, very godly people who do. Uh, Samuel Renahan, fellow brother of ours, has written a whole book about it with a Latin title. <laughs> um, but uh, if you want to check that out in your own time, great. Um, he probably makes the best case that could be made for that view in that book. Uh, I don't take the view. I, I tend to go with that third view that um, Paul's not just talking about Christ being humbled to the earth in his incarnation. He's talking about being humbled all the way to the point of death specifically. And that's my view. Uh, Again, S.M. Baugh, he says, The advantage of that third view is that the nether regions of the earth, namely the grave or Sheol, expresses the purpose of the Son of God's descent. And it includes the idea of the cross and the death of Christ that is concerned Paul as paving the way for his exaltation to the highest place of all creation by freeing his people from sin. So, and he quotes John Chrysostom here from... Uh, back in early church history, John Chrysostom said, so by the lower parts of the earth, he means death. Um, I actually looked that up in Chrysostom's writings this week, and yes, it seems he, John Chrysostom agrees with me. Not that you all even know who that is, but um, anyway, uh, so this is not a new, totally new view. Let's turn to Matthew 12. I want to show you, just compare what Paul says here to what Jesus said in Matthew 12 about his upcoming death and resurrection. So in Ephesians, Paul speaks of this one who, before he ascended above all the heavens, he descended to the lower regions of the earth. It sounds very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 12 and verse 40. But we'll start in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now again, For similar reasons, this would be a controversial text too. What is Jesus exactly trying to say about the heart of the earth? Well, before I uh, go any further, let me say, um, in a church before this one, I put together a whole series of teaching on uh, the doctrine of the afterlife in Scripture. Heaven and hell and everything in between is what I think I called it. even dealt with ideas like purgatory and all that. And it would take a series like that to tease out all the reasons, all the implications for, okay, where did the Old Testament righteous go when they died? I think they went straight to heaven, by the way. <laughs> um, not everyone agrees. But uh, there, there is a whole lot more that I'm, I'm just not trying to cover here. But I'm going to give you my conclusions and see if they resonate as you look at Scripture. I will say the very day that Jesus died... He was with the repentant thief in paradise, as Jesus promised. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And if we understand what paradise is in Scripture, 
it's clearly not a place of holding. Uh, it, it's no, no other place than the presence of God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians defines paradise, the paradise of God, as the third heaven, where God's immediate presence is. Paradise is actually just another word for a garden sort of paradise, an Eden. It's used in, in the Greek Old Testament referring to Eden in a way. So the idea of paradise is where man could walk and talk with God in person. Paradise was not something separate from heaven in the Old Testament. Um, so paradise has always been, the, the greater paradise has always been God's presence in, in the third heaven. So Jesus said to the repentant thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. But Jesus' body was buried, wasn't it? Um, proving he was really dead, by the way. Uh, he was prepared, his body was prepared for burial, and then he was put in the ground, in the side of the rock, in a tomb. <laughs> and Jesus' body was buried. That picture, that, that's pictured by Jesus here in Matthew 12 as being in the heart of the earth. A Hebrew way of saying inside the earth, <laughs> the interior of the earth. And Jesus, why does Jesus word it that way? Well, he's, he's already comparing himself to the prophet Jonah. Jonah had a near-death experience in the belly of the fish. Remember that? I'm sure you've been to Sunday school and you know that story, right? He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As the great fish swallowed Jonah... The earth swallowed Christ in the sense of his burial. He was dead and buried. Jonah 2, 1 through 6. Listen to how, and you can turn there if you want. Jonah 2, verses 1 through 6. Listen to Jonah's wording as he talks to God about his predicament in the belly of the fish. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol, that word often translated Hades in the Greek Old Testament. Um, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. There's not heart of the earth, but the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Again, a similar idea to the heart of the earth. I was down at the roots of the mountains. (laughs) I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now again, this is a larger topic, but these are all standard Old Testament ways to speak picturesquely of the reality of death. And Jonah is, is drawing near to death. Unless, unless God delivers him from the belly of the fish, he's still going to die, right? God has the fish vomit Jonah out on the dry land after three days and three nights. Um, so Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek, that word has what we call semantic range. It, it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. Um, sometimes it refers to the place of torment for the departed spirits of the wicked, like we would talk about hell. But it often refers more generally to death and the grave. 
And even righteous people in that sense, like Jacob, we saw in Genesis, he talks about going down to Sheol or going down to the pit when he dies. It's in that sense that Jesus descended into the nether regions, the heart of the earth. But God had promised not to leave him in Sheol and Hades. That is, not to leave his flesh to corruption. So go to Acts chapter 2. Shouldn't be too unfamiliar of a text, Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches to the Jews, and his big point is that Jesus is their promised Messiah, the promised son of David, who, who fulfills the prophecies. And he's saying, you're the one who killed him. You're the ones who killed him. The Jewish people killed their Messiah. But Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost here to Jewish people. And he says in Acts 2.23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Hebrew to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. I think what's going on there in the psalm is Hebrew parallelism. It'll state the same thing two different ways, one after the other. Um, you will not abandon me, or my, my soul just refers to the person often in the Old Testament. You will not abandon me, you could say, to Hades. In other words, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's the idea. Verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's big point he's getting across is simply that Yes, Jesus died. Yes, they thought their Messiah was not supposed to be killed like this. But he rose from the dead. And he did so because he had to to fulfill prophecy. That's the big point. He truly died. And he truly rose from the dead. Because God had promised this to the son of David. That's Peter's big point. Again, we, we can disagree on some of the details here. And, and we can be just fine with each other. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to explain my best understanding of the text here and not and trying not to rush over it too quickly. Then look at the rest of our text in Ephesians 4. So, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean 
but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Very Hebrew way of speaking of descending into death in the grave. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He ascended far above all the heavens to the place of highest authority over all, God's throne room, if you will, in order to fill all things. What does that mean? To fill all things. Well, one person has said it means that nothing in the cosmos is left untouched by Christ. (laughs) That's one good way of looking at it. Nothing in the universe is left untouched by Christ. Because of his triumph and how he rules over all now. But as S.M. Boss says, we need to remember that filling and fullness earlier in Ephesians refer to God's glory filling his inaugurated new creation temple, the church. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul had included in his prayer that Christ may take up his dwelling in your hearts as the Lord of the covenant, fulfilling his oath-sealed pledge to dwell with his people. In the reference to filling all things, Paul expresses Christ's presence in the church through his spirit. Well, you say, which is it? Christ filling all things. Is that talking about what he does to the cosmos, the universe, or what he does to the church? I would say the answer is both, if you're looking from every angle. The church is the one body of redeemed humanity that will one day be perfectly glorified, perfectly filled with the glory of God. And it's the church, the saints, who will inherit all things. Because the Lord of the church was crucified, he rose again, and he's ascended to the right hand of God. Who will be left to populate the universe in the end analysis? The church. The universal church of all ages. All others will be banished from God's glorious presence. In eternal torment. Reminds me of several texts. Quickly. That probably aren't unfamiliar to you. Matthew 5, five, Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And that's quoting Psalm 37. 10 and 11. In just a little while. The wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place. He will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. Or the earth. And delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus said, Matthew 13, verse 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. But Jesus says fits in with what he says, what the Lord uh, revealed to Daniel in the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 2, for instance. Nebuchadnezzar sees the kingdoms of the earth as a giant statue image. But then the kingdom of God comes down from heaven like a big rock and smashes the image. And about that stone, it says the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. God's kingdom fills all things. And it's interpreted there in Daniel 2 as God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, uh, will bring all other kingdoms to an end, but it shall stand forever. 
Similarly, Daniel 7.27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So my point is, the church is the new humanity that inherits all things. And by filling the church with God's glory, Christ will thereby fill all things with God's glory. Isaiah 11, 9-10 They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So Christ fills his body, the church, the temple dwelling of God, with the glory of God. But that's not just a future event of glorification. It's already begun. The new creation has already dawned, right? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Christ is already about the business of filling all things. He already has filled all the saints with every blessing of God's spirit in the heavenly places. Right now. That's how Ephesians starts. He dwells in our hearts by faith now. So we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3. And Paul is about to describe the lavish provisions in chapter 4 here. Which we already have. Christ has given us these lavish provisions together so that we as the body of Christ can be filled with the fullness of Christ who is the image of God. William Hendrickson says, Christ, as the now exalted mediator, fills the entire universe with blessings, or if one prefers, with gifts, the very gifts which he had earned, salvation full and free, and the services of those who proclaim it, such as apostles, prophets, evangelists, etc. That's where Paul's going. One more quote. Frank Thielman, he says, and he's, now he's pulling it all together. Why is Paul pausing here and saying, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Why is he saying that? Well, because, and it's very clear in, in the Greek, he has a special word of pointing out this person. He, he descended, he ascended, and now he, next verse, he gave the apostles, the prophets, and so on. So Frank Thielman says, The Christ who is powerful enough to conquer the enemies of God's people in every corner of the universe is also the Christ who equips God's people to fulfill their destiny of full union with him. If he was strong enough for one task, he is strong enough for the other. So we can get lost in the weeds and the details, but we should get the big point. Christ has already accomplished the, the heavy lifting, if you want to put it that way. He's already done the big stuff. That's already accomplished. He descended as low as not only to become one of us, but he descended all the way to the grave to save us. And then he ascended as high as you can imagine, far above all the heavens, to reign. 
if we're talking about the one who's already done all that, we have all we need from him. He is strong enough, he is wise enough to order his church, to build his church as he sees fit. He is, we should trust him with how he has decided to place us in the body of Christ. We should trust his provision of leadership, as Paul is about to say first, um, and his provision of, of those from whom we get the body of the faith, the apostles and prophets, and then the evangelists and pastors and teachers to further explain it. We should trust the fact that he's put us together to work together in the body as different members of the same body. We should trust all that because Christ's already done far greater things. He's just mopping up now, if you want to put it that way. There's one verse of a hymn that we have in our hymnal that says that captures this contrast this contrast between Christ descending and Christ ascending very well. Who is this? Behold him shedding drops of blood upon the ground. Who is this despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, bound? Tis our God, who gifts and graces on his church is pouring down. Who shall smite in holy vengeance all his foes beneath his throne? If I read Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4 from the NIV, I think it gives us the sense well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Paul is taken up in Ephesians a lot with, with the exalted Christ, but he doesn't want us to forget the humbled Christ. The suffering Christ. Who, came, who went so low, so deep for our salvation. Don't forget that the one who ascended first descended. He condescended to take to himself our very nature and then to die the death of the cross under God's curse as the propitiation, the satisfaction for the sins of his people. It's because he's descended so low and then ascended so high that he has everything we need. So I'll just close with Hebrews 4, 14-16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's been lower than you'll ever go by his grace, so that he may raise you higher than all things to his own side. But he still remembers what it is to plumb the depths of the human dilemma. That's not a strong enough word for it. He's been to the cross for you. 
He went to the grave for you. He suffered God's wrath in your place. You you will never have to. And he knows what it's like to be tempted and to suffer. We have a very competent king and priest in heaven. Let's not forget that. The big idea of the text in Ephesians, the church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. Let's remember he is Lord of the church and we should be eager to do his pleasure together. Let's pray. Lord, the text we've covered this morning and then this afternoon has not been an easy text. It has a lot of texture to it and takes chewing. We've had to get out our steak knives to cut it into bite-sized pieces. But Lord, help us to digest it well so that then we can have in mind what we need as we move on to Paul talking about the body of Christ, and how it should function. Lord, we ask that Christ would be trusted by us, loved by us. We ask that we would obey our Lord Christ and not doubt him or his ways. Help us to encourage each other by the example of our Lord Jesus and by the fact that he did all that he did for each one of us. We pray this in his name. Amen.